Our scripture reading today is, of course, from the book of Matthew. Um, chapter 13, we'll be reading the first half of it, verses 1 through 33. Uh, it's a lot of parables, which was Jesus' way of talking to us, making it easy for us to understand things that were divinely given. Anyways, here we go. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given. And he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in the case of the in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in, the, in his heart. This is what, has sown, what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. He put another parable before them, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest it gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Thank you. And I forgot to ask you all to stand. Thank you, Mike. Turn back with me a couple of pages to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. 
Now, often when we think of Christmas, we think of the manger, the stables, shepherd, angels, and even the wise men. However, God's plan to rescue mankind did not begin with a manger. Rather, the plan began long before. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4 tells us that God had planned the rescue, his rescue operation before the foundation of the world. He knew that sin and disobedience would enter into the world, yet he chose to create us and give us the will to choose between obeying him and disobeying him anyway. As we read through our Bibles, we see that the Bible is actually brutally honest about the people that God chooses to use to bring about his purposes. In fact, it is because God honestly presents these people that we can clearly see that there is only one true hero in all of Scripture. That hero is Jesus. Only Jesus is truly righteous. Only Jesus is truly good. He is truly righteous and good because unlike any other human who has ever walked the planet, he is the fully divine Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. The Son of God took on flesh and walked amongst amongst us, John will tell us in John chapter 1, verse 14. So knowing that Jesus is the hero, what role do the rest of these people play? What is the point of all the other people mentioned in the Bible? Today we will examine an often forgotten but vitally important part of the Christmas story. The story before the story, if you will. The story which makes the story possible. If <clears throat> Matthew gives an outline of this story in the very beginning of his gospel using a genealogy. Through this genealogy, we will notice two important pieces of good news. First, we will see the good news, the gospel. We will see the miraculous way in which God brought about salvation to the world by sending his son via broken people to bring true healing to broken people. And secondly, we will see that there is good news that we can be encouraged that God can even use broken people like us to do his will. So as I came to this passage, I thought about who could I get to read this passage? And I thought Wayne already gave it a try. And he was uh, pretty upset with his performance. But instead, I got, a, I got a, another guitar player to help me out with the scripture reading this morning. So I'm going to have him uh, lead us. I'm going to have my friend Andrew. I don't really know him. It's a joke. It's not, not really my friend. Anyway, I'm going to have Andrew help us out with, with, this, with this reading this passage this morning. Well, Abraham had Isaac. Isaac, he had Jacob. Jacob, he had Judah and his kin. Then Perez and Zerah came from Judah's woman Tamar. Perez, he brought Hezron up and then came Aram, then Amenadab, then Nashan, who was then the dad of Salmon, who with Rahab fathered Boaz. Ruth, she married Boaz, who had Obed, who had Jesse. Jesse, he had David, who we know as king. David, he had Solomon by dead Uriah's wife. Solomon, well, you all know him. He had good old Rehoboam, followed by Abijah, who had Asa. Asa had Jehoshaphat, had Joram, had Isaiah, who had Jotham, then Ahaz, then Hezekiah. Followed by Manasseh, who had Amon, who was Amen, who was father of a good boy named Josiah, who grandfathered Jehoiakim, who caused the Babylonian captivity because he was a liar, which isn't really true, but it rhymes. Then he had Shealtiel, who begat Zerubbabel, who had Abiud, who had Eliakim, like him had Azer, who had Zadok, who had Achim. Achim was the father of Eliah. Then he had Eliezer, who had Nathan, who had Jacob. Now listen very closely, I don't want to sing this twice. Jacob was the father of Joseph, husband of Mary, 
passage together. Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah uh, and his brothers, and the time, at the time of the departure of, to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, uh, Jeconiah was the father of Sheltiel, and Sheltiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of, of Mathen, and Mathen, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. From the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this wonderful passage. Lord, even though this passage may be one that we might skip because of our inability to pronounce the names or what have you. God, this is such a vital importance of your story and how you brought redemption to mankind. I pray that as we dive into this passage, as we look through it, that we would see your glorious footprint, your glorious signature across the ages. I pray us all in your name. Amen. Now before we go any further, we must notice a couple of difficulties that this passage presents to the reader. First, Matthew's genealogy skips many generations. This is actually not very surprising, as we can see similar examples throughout the Old Testament where genealogies make similar jumps in the timeline. Thus, Matthew is following Old Testament precedent. The best explanation of this phenomenon is that Matthew is not seeking to give a detailed list of every individual in Jesus' genealogy, but rather, he is making a theological claim to demonstrate the complete fulfillment of God's plan of redemption through the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Second, the careful reader will notice that there is a clear difference between Matthew's list of names and the list of names given in the genealogy of Jesus that's outlined in Luke chapter 3. There are two common reasons given for this difference. One reason may be that Luke is following Mary's genealogy, naming Joseph as the son-in-law to Mary's father. The other, more commonly accepted today, uh, is that Matthew is following a royal lineage, demonstrating the line of who would be king if the monarch had continued, while Luke follows Joseph's actual lineage. These, these issues are, 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 can be a little bit, uh, can bog us down if we're not careful. Uh, essentially, the point is that we don't know exactly why there's these differences, and so we're trying to understand what, what might be the best illustration. So again, most scholars today would say that what Matthew is doing is he's following the royal lineage down to where it would be if the monarchy had continued, while Luke follows Joseph's actual parentage through uh, David's son Nathan rather than through Solomon. 
Third, and not nearly as difficult, is that Matthew and Luke both follow the genealogy through Joseph, even though Joseph was not really the father of Jesus. After all, Luke and Matthew are both clear that Mary was a virgin. Now this has a two-sided explanation. First side is that Jewish genealogies hardly, if ever, followed a genealogy through a female. Uh, uh, follows the genealogy of a female, po- apologize. Second, Joseph was still Jesus' legal father, and as, uh, as, an earthly, as, earthly law was, as far as earthly law was concerned, thus, Joseph's lineage would be important from a legal standpoint. So that kind of helps us with some of these particular issues. So now those issues, we've, now that we've discussed those, let's move on to the passage itself. Beginning in verse 1, it says in your, your translation, maybe written a little bit differently, but my translation reads, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, literally, this is, this is going to blow your minds, guys. This blew my mind. Literally, what this says in, in the original Greek is it literally says, the book of Genesis of Jesus Christ. The book of Genesis of Jesus Christ. Matthew here intentionally connects the gospel with the first book of the Bible. Very similar to how John does in John chapter 1, verse 1, where it says, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Or in the beginning was the word, and the word is with God, and the word was God, connecting it to Genesis 1, 1, that starts off with in the beginning. Matthew is doing the same thing. What his intention here, by using the Greek name for the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, by Drawing that connection, he is showing that Christ is the fulfillment of all of Scripture. Further, while Genesis 1 recounts the creation, Matthew emphasizes here that the coming of Jesus marks the coming of the new creation, the fulfillment of all of Scripture, the new creation in Christ Jesus. We also see in the second half of the verse that he shows the prominence of two important figures. He's the son of David, the son of Abraham, which is kind of, if you were to outline what this next outline is going to be, the outline of the outline would be, he's the son of David, son of Abraham. These two prominent figures showing uh, that Jesus comes through this royal line of David and also through this promised line of Abraham. Then if we continue on in the verses, uh, verses 2 through 16 is kind of the, the meat of what this genealogy section has here. Uh, Matthew divides this genealogy into three major sections, as he'll outline for us in, chat, in uh, verse 17. He, he outlines Abraham to David, David to the exile into Babylon, and then from the exile to Babylon to Jesus. His genealogy spans most of the entirety of the Old Testament and, and even beyond. As best as we can, what we're going to do here is we're going we're gonna to seek to get a glimpse into who these people are so we can understand, uh, better understand God's unfolding plan of redemption in the scriptures. So essentially what Matthew does is he gives us an outline of the entire Bible from about Genesis 15 on to the end, right? All the way through Malachi, if you will. He gives us a summary by listing these names. So let's kind of dive in and kind of do a survey of Scripture and kind of see where this is going. What's taking place? Who are these people? Right? We might be tempted to just say, oh, it's just a list of names. Who cares? But each one of these names represents a person who did something, who had some aspect of their life that God was using. Now, let's, let's unfold this and let's show, let's look at these, this pretty unlikely group of people and, and how, how kind of surprising this might be to us. Starts out with Abraham. Now, if we were to go all the way back into Genesis and around Genesis 15 or so, God picks a man from Ur of the Chaldees, a man who's not a follower of God. In fact, he's a pagan. God calls him out and says, Abraham, I want you to go to the promised land, to, to the land of Canaan. That's where I want you to go. Now, this man, who's an idol-worshiping Chaldean, meets the Lord and says, Yep, okay, let's do it. So he obeys the Lord, packs up his stuff, and moves across and, moves and starts moving to the land of Canaan. God gives Abraham a very specific promise. He says, I am going, through you, I'm going to, I'm going to build a family, 
I'm going to give you a land, and I'm going to be a blessing to you. He's gives, he promises land, seed, and a blessing. He tells them that you're going to have children. They're going to number more than the stars of the sky. Now, the interesting thing about this is Abraham is an old man, and his wife is an old lady. Can't have kids after a certain age. And they're at that age. And he knows that. Yet God makes him this promise anyway. Now, after God makes this promise, Abraham does something interesting. He starts to decide to take matters into his own hands. So, you know what? God promised me that I'm going to have children. Maybe what he meant for me to do is have children by my wife's servant. So, Sarah, his wife, says, why don't you have my, my servant for your wife? Right? Think of this. Let's, let's backtrack here, right? God had already established in Genesis 1 and 2 that marriage is between one man and one woman for life. And what God does is this, God has this guy that he's chosen, and what this man does is he chooses instead to go away from God's plan for marriage and to bring another wife into the relationship. We call this polygamy. He jumps into a sinful relationship with this woman that breaks God's law because he takes matters into his own hands. Not only did he do that, he, he, had, a, he had a son by, his, by his, his wife's servant, Hagar, a, a son named Ishmael. Not only that, but in the process of this time, as he's traveling around, he runs into two different situations where he gets scared and he stops trusting the Lord. Instead of trusting the Lord, he says, you know what, my wife is smoking hot, and uh, these kings might want to have her to be their wife so i'm just going to go ahead and tell them that they're my sister that she's my sister because i don't want them to kill me right that doesn't sound like a man who trusts the lord too much does it that's what he does two different times he he crafts this lie to say that she's she's my sister now part of that was partly true they were half brother half sister um that was so it was it was a partially true statement but he, she was indeed his wife so he crafts this lie, and together they lie to a couple of different kings. One of the times that bites them right in the rear end because the king says, Why didn't you just tell me she was your wife? Right? Why didn't you tell me? I wouldn't have done anything. I didn't do anything in the first place, and I wouldn't have if I knew it was your wife. Because this king actually feared the Lord. So Abraham is, is not exactly this picture-perfect guy. Often we think of Abraham, we're like, Oh, Abraham, he's this awesome guy, but he's, he's kind of a messed up dude. Kind of does some messed up stuff. Well, then the next guy in this list is a guy named Isaac. Isaac is, uh, unlike his dad, Isaac actually stays faithful to his wife. His wife is unable to have kids instead of neglecting the Lord's promise to have a, to have a child. Well, God brings a child to Abraham through Sarah, and this child's name is Isaac. Isaac actually does not disobey the Lord in this situation. Rather, he prays for his wife, and his wife bears a son. And, and continues on. But at the same time, Isaac did follow in his father's footsteps in one way. The very same king that Abraham had lied to about his wife being his sister, Isaac did the exact same thing. He didn't trust the Lord enough. This time it wasn't exactly true because they were not brother or sister, not even close, right? But yet he does the same exact lie that his father had done, and he does not he does, not, uh, he does not perfectly trust the Lord. Well, they have two sons named Jacob and Esau. One of these, prom the promised son in this line is Jacob, the, God, the guy through whom God uses. Now, Jacob, right? This is the guy whose name is changed to Israel, right? All the people of Israel, they look to Jacob. He is the man. He is the guy who the 12 sons of Israel, the 12 sons of Jacob, that's who they come from, right? Jacob's a great guy. What a great man. What does the Bible tell us about Jacob? He was a trickster. From the very moment of his birth, he was a trickster. Kind of a couple of, uh, of instances, he, he tricked his brother out of his birthright. And then he tricks his brother out of his blessing from his father. Both times at the behest of his mother, right? His mother said, hey, why don't you go do this? But then the trickster gets tricked. He goes to find a wife, and he meets this girl. He says, man, she is gorgeous. I want to meet, I want to marry her. And he, she tells her dad, I will work for you for seven years for free if you'll let me marry her. And he says, great, cool. 
Seven years later, what happens to the trickster? His uncle, his, his Laban, his, his father-in-law then tricks him and gives instead her sister. This girl that he wanted to marry instead gave her his sister. He says, wait a minute, I worked for Rachel, not for Leah. And Laban says, okay, well, you can have Rachel too, entering into polygamy again. Well, this whole scenario then, this, this, this becomes, ends up with this huge struggle between Rachel and Leah, this favoritism of children and things like that. It was, it was, uh, it was an honorable thing for a, for a, a mother at the time to, to have sons for her husband. Right, so that the name can pass on. So this is this honorable thing. And Leah ends up having sons. God blesses her and she has sons. But, but Jacob continues to favor Rachel. Right? He continues to give all the favor to Rachel. Instead of, he continues having kids with Leah, but starts to favor Rachel. So Rachel says, why don't you take my servant as a wife as well? And then Leah stops having kids and the, the ser other servant girl starts having kids. Leah stops having kids and says, hey, why don't you take my servant too? So now he's got four wives. Every guy in this room should say, you, you, this guy was really stupid, right? Four wives, are you kidding me, right? It's a crazy idea. And so then all this favoritism stuff keeps going on and, and, and essentially uh, God ends up bringing, he has 12 different sons and probably other daughters as well. Um, and this, this whole crazy situation is going on. And you're thinking, Jacob is not a good guy. He's a messed up dude. In fact, he continues not to, be able, not to trust the Lord when he decides to go back. When God tells him, you need to go back to Canaan, you need to go back to the land of your fathers, he's still afraid of Esau. And he thinks Esau is going to kill him as soon as he sees him because he stole his birthright. He stole his blessing. He's probably mad at me. So instead of trusting the Lord, he, he devises this plan. In fact, on their way, he ends up even actually having a literal wrestling match with God that he loses. Yes, he loses that wrestling match, obviously. And then God changes his name to Israel. Well, then one of their sons, not the firstborn son, in fact, it's the fourth son of, of, uh, of um, Leah, the one who was not favored, the fourth son, his name is Judah. Judah's an interesting guy as well. Judah's kind of, there's not a whole lot mentioned about Judah specifically, except for in chapter 38. In Genesis chapter 38, we get this, this, this interesting interruption. We're following, at this point in Genesis, we've started to follow Joseph and what's been going on with him. It's Judah's brother, Joseph. And then all of a sudden we have this break in the middle of the narrative and we have this story about Judah. And Judah has three different sons. The first son is an evil man, and God takes his life. His wife's name was Tamar. Tamar, she was, uh, she waited around, and you know, at that time, part of, the, part of the custom was that the next son would marry the widow, so that he, and then the, their first child would be uh, a child for the older brother. Well, the second brother refused to do that, he refused, to, he refused to do what he was supposed to do as a brother, and God cursed him for that and had him killed as well. Well, by this time, Judah kind of freaks out. and He says, uh, you're not having my youngest son. That's not going to happen. But he does. He promises Tamar. He says, when he's old enough, you can marry him. Right? He's young right now. When he's old enough, you can marry him. Well, when he became old enough to marry, what did Judah do? He conveniently forgot. Now, the interesting thing here is what, what, what goes on next. Tamar dresses like a prostitute, right? And stands by the gate. And Judah says, hey, look, guys, a prostitute. And what does he do? He takes advantage of that situation. Which again, like you're thinking, are you, are you kidding me right now? He, he has no idea that it's his daughter-in-law, but still he's jumping into partaking in prostitution. Not a great idea, Judah, Right? Not exactly like the per perfect picture of a guy that you want to uh, bring a savior through, if you will. Right? Not exactly the greatest guy in the world. And Tamar did this by tricking him by dressing like a prostitute. Well, anyway, God uses that situation to bring about children for Tamar. Two children uh, named per uh, um, scriptures tell us, uh, Perez, the uh, or, yeah, um excuse me, Perez and Zerah, they have twins. Um, and, and so 
Perez is the one through whom uh, we, we have this, the promise goes through. But Tamar, an interesting, other th- interesting thing about Tamar, not only was her situation with Judah a little bit fishy, she's also not even Israelite. She was a Canaanite. She wasn't even from Abraham's family. She was from a completely different family. Then we have three people that are, or, or several people that are mentioned, Perez, Hezron, Ram, and Aminadab that, that Matthew makes mention of. We know very little about them. Uh, we just know their names pretty much and, and how they fit into this genealogy. But next here, we're given uh, information about a guy named Nashon. This is the next guy that we actually have information about, Nashon. This, is, this brings, up now, brings us now up to the middle of the Exodus, right? Ab- or, uh, Moses... And Aaron are leading the people out of Egypt, and they're on their way to the promised land, having been in Egypt for a number of years. And in Numbers chapter 2 and verse 3, we find out that Nashon was the chief of the tribe of Judah. So this guy is leading the tribe of Judah. This is who Nashon is. So what are some things that maybe we can gather? We don't know much about Nashon specifically, but we know some things about the people of Israel at this time. At this time, Moses had sent spies into the land of, Ca- land of Canaan. If you ever know the song, 10 men, or, uh, you know, uh, 12 men went to spy on Canaan, 10 were bad and 2 were good, so on. Anyway, that song, right? I'm not going to sing for you anymore, sorry. But the 10 spies, they come back and say, look, there's giants there. We can't do this. There's no way that we're going to be able to do what God asked us to do. And most of the people, in fact, Scripture would explain it as all of the people took their side and said, we're going to, we don't want to do that. We don't want to go in. Well, who would all the people include? Guys like Nashon, refused to trust the Lord. So he was likely amongst those who rebelled against the Lord and instead caused the people to have to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. The next person in our list is a guy named Salmon. Salmon is another person we know very, very little about. We do know that he must have been a contemporary of Joshua because, so Salmon would have fit into uh, the story of Joshua in the book of Joshua because Matthew tells us he is married to Rahab. Rahab, if you remember from Joshua chapter 2, she is the prostitute that the spies who went to Jericho stayed with and then she protected them. Now, think about the situation itself. This is not exactly the best scenario for God's people, is it? Why do you think these uh, spies decided to go and check into the prostitute's house. Right? Dot, dot, dot. This is not a great situation here. But in the, in the, in the midst of this, God ends up using Rahab to, to protect them so that they can go back and report and they can come and take over the land of, the land of Jericho, the, the city of Jericho. But Rahab asked him to make a promise. She says, when you come back, I know you're going to destroy this. I know you're doing what God wants you to do. Save me, right? Get me and my family out of here. So she makes that promise. They fulfill that promise. Rahab then also is a Canaanite. She's also not part of the genealogy of, of, of Abraham. She's a foreigner. She's a Gentile. But Rahab and Salmon have a, have, a, have, a, have a son whose name is Boaz. You might recognize Boaz from the book of Ruth. Boaz is a pretty good guy. There's not a whole lot of negative things that we learn about Boaz. Um, we do know that Ruth, his wife, is a Moabite, so she's also a Gentile. She's also not from the line of, uh, of Abraham. Uh, we read about them in the book of Ruth. There's also, what's interesting here in in the book of Ruth, though, what what is kind of suspicious is just like some of these other situations, this really suspicious event that takes place. Uh, In the middle of the book of Ruth, when Ruth goes to tell uh, Boaz that she, basically he's her her kinsman redeemer, the one that through whom uh, that she could could be married and then they could restore, restore that line. Uh, when he t- goes to tell her this, uh, Naomi asks her to go into the room and uncover his feet. Now, to us, that may sound like something that's not super strange, right? That's kind of weird, like, okay, uncover his feet, take the blanket off his feet, like what? But in Scripture, that's actually 
a possibly a euphemism for uncovering his private areas. This is what Naomi asked him to do. So this is kind of a fishy, kind of a strange situation, right? That might have had improper intentions. Whatever the case is, Boaz doesn't let that go any further, and they go about it the right way, and then he brings redemption to Ruth. And through them, they have a couple of, they they have a a child um, named Obed, and Obed has a child named Jesse, and Jesse is the father of David. Now, David, right? That's a hero we can latch on to. Conquers Goliath. He's a great guy, right? He ends up, he ends up actually taking over the land, of, the land of Israel the way it was supposed to be, the way that God had commanded the people to do at first. He finally gets that all taken care of and, and, and throws out the people that were in there. But David's not perfect either. This moment that David has when he was supposed to be, he was supposed to be uh, out at war, and instead he stayed home. And he went up on the roof at bath time, and he sees a woman named Bathsheba. He says, man, she is good looking. She's married to a guy named Uriah. Uriah was a Hittite. Bathsheba was probably also very likely also a Hittite. She was also not a part of the people of Israel. Situation. Basically what David ends up doing is he commits adultery with this woman, gets her pregnant, and in order to hide it, ends up killing her husband to hide the sin. So not only does he commit adultery, he also commits murder. This is who David is. David has a, has a, a son named Solomon. Now Solomon, if you start in, in, in the book of Kings, in 1 Kings, Solomon starts out like he's a pretty good guy, right? He's, he, starts re- he starts building God's temple for him and does all this stuff. He, and, but then he has 300 wives and 700 girlfriends. And these, these women, they're all from all the nations. And what they do is they pull his heart toward idolatry and they pull the heart of the people of Israel toward idolatry. His son, Rehoboam, did not follow in the wisdom of his father. In fact, his son, Rehoboam, does the exact opposite. The men who are, who are with Solomon, the wisest man in the entire world, those men who, who were with him, who, who knew Solomon's wisdom, Rehoboam went to them and said, now what do I do as king? And they said, you know what? Take it easy on the people. And then he went to his friends. And his friends said, be harder on the people. They'll fear you. So what did he do? He took the advice of his friends. Instead of the wise advice of his father's friends, he took the advice of his friends. And the Bible tells us that he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And where his father had built a temple, a place to worship and serve the God of Israel, Rehoboam set up high places to worship idols. It's in 1 Kings 14, 21 through 31. His son's name is Abijah. Scripture tells us he also, like his father Rehoboam, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. His son's name is Asa. Asa followed the Lord. And he removed a lot of, of, of idol worship, but Scripture tells us he still did not remove the high places. Did some good things, but still did not remove the high places. So the people of Israel continued to worship idols there. His son's name is Jehoshaphat. He did the same as Asa. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord. He himself worshiped the Lord, but yet he did not lead the people of Israel back to worshiping the Lord. He still left the high places there. Joram followed the ways of Ahab. While his father was a good king, a godly king, a a man who, who followed the Lord, Joram said, you know what? That guy Ahab up north there, Ahab was a very, very evil king, if you remember from 1 Kings. Joram says, I want to be like that guy. So what he did is he leads the people into idolatry. The next man Matthew mentions is a guy named Uzziah. The Old Testament calls him Azariah. He followed his father Amaziah uh, and did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but 
But the high places still remain. Just like his fathers before him, he still did not take down the high places. And God cursed him and made him a leper. This is 2 Kings chapter 15. His son's name was was Jotham. Jotham did the same as Uzziah. He followed the Lord. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. But he still left the high places. Ahaz. He followed the kings of Israel, just like Joram had done. He, sacri- he, even, he even sacrificed his son as worship to idols. He murdered his son to worship a false god. And he dismantled the temple, took its gold off to, in order to pay off the king of Syria so they could be protected. Hezekiah jumps into the scene. This is all going out at the time of Isaiah, as we mentioned, as Isaiah was mentioned earlier. Hezekiah was actually a really good king. He, he removed the high places. He even broke the bronze serpent. Remember back in uh, M- Moses used this bronze serpent to, to bring healing to the people when they were being bit by snakes. The people had started worshiping this bronze serpent as an idol, and he broke it to get rid of that idolatry. But Hezekiah also like his father before him, took the treasures of the temple, these things that had been set apart for the worship of the Lord, and he gave them to the king of Assyria to, get, to keep him from destroying them. He also did something very foolish. There was an envoy came from the nation of Babylon to check out what was going on. You know, there were spies, essentially, that came into Israel, to Judah, and Hezekiah welcomed them in and said, hey guys, let me show you all our stuff making it that much easier for the people of Babylon to come and sweep and wipe them out, which would happen a couple of generations later. Another thing Hezekiah does not do, he also did not pass on his godliness to his son. His son's name was Manasseh, and Manasseh did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and returned the people back to idols. His son Amos did the exact same thing, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and led the people back into idolatry. Josiah, he looks up to great-granddad, and he says, Hezekiah, do what I want to do. He does right, and he rebuilds the temple, and he returns to following the law when they found the, the law in the temple. And he broke down the high places, but just like Hezekiah, he doesn't teach his son how to do the same. His son, Jeconiah, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And Jeconiah was the king when they were brought into captivity by the people of Babylon. He was taken into captivity and later was released from prison and made to be a prince, a, a ruler among the people of Babylon. He had a son named Sheltiel. Sheltiel, we don't know much about. Scripture just mentions him in lists of names just like, just like Matthew does. We don't know much about him, but he has a son named Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, we do know a couple things about. Zerubbabel, he helped rebuild the temple when they returned from exile. Zerubbabel is actually brought up as a pretty, a pretty important guy. He came back with the people of Israel with the first wave to help rebuild the temple. In fact, Haggai chapter 2 verses 20 through 23 actually uses Zerubbabel as a messianic figure, saying, Zerubbabel, I'm going to set you up as the king and you're going to bring salvation, right? So Zerubbabel is actually used as a messianic figure and his life itself points to the coming Messiah's role as king. Then the rest of this list, from Abiud to Jacob, there is zero biblical account. These are people that were after the time of captivity, after Zerubbabel, and Scripture is silent on all these people. So we know nothing about them. Then we get introduced to Joseph and Mary. Joseph and Mary, except for their lineage, are nobodies from a small town. Imagine the most obscure person in Gordon. This is who Mary and Joseph are. They're the most obscure person in Gordon, Texas. Small town, and they're nobodies in a small town. Mary was also probably around 15 years old at this time when she has Jesus. So they're nobodies. They're just a young couple. They're nobodies. But here we have God using them. Verse 17 then Matthew kind of summarizes all this and shows what his purpose was. He says, so the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. We don't know exactly why 
14 was such an important number for Matthew. We don't know why he set it up that way. He doesn't really tell us. He just tells us that, that is important. What we do know, though, from the rest of Matthew's writing and from the way he sets this all up is that this genealogy was there to show the complete fulfillment of God's plan. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, why in the world would he choose those people? This is like the worst of the worst. This is the who's who of terrible people that have ever walked the face of the earth. What in the world was God doing? So there's two areas of application we'll look at today. First, we'll see the good news, the gospel. We're going to see that God uses, in a miraculous way, God uses these people to bring about salvation to the world by sending his son via these broken people to bring true healing to broken people. Every person mentioned in this list was a sinner in need of salvation. For most of them, the Old Testament gives clear indications of their brokenness. We might even say that this list contains some of the most dysfunctional people with the most dysfunctional families to have ever walked the earth. But, despite their sinful efforts, God still used them to bring about salvation to the whole world. Through their lineage and by God's grace, the Son of God entered into humanity. Born of a virgin, born in a stable, to offer his life up as a pleasing sacrifice for your sin and my sin so that we might be saved from the death that our sin rightly deserves. These people may be despicable, but God graciously used them, these broken people, to heal and save broken people like us. This is why Matthew began his gospel this way. Second, we see there's good news in that we can be encouraged that God can even use broken people like us to do his will. As much as we want to stare at this list and scoff at their sinfulness, we cannot help but see ourselves in each of them. Like Abraham, we have great difficulty trusting in God. Like Judah and Tamar, we have time and again committed shameful acts. Like Rahab, we've acted like a prostitute selling ourselves to foolish idols in the name of financial security or in the name of sexual satisfaction. Like David, we have murdered people that are close to us by treating them poorly and functionally hating them. Like Solomon, our love for pleasure and the good stuff of life has driven our hearts away from God. Like many of the good kings of Judah, we may worship the Lord in general, but we so easily hide away secret sins and never fully surrender ourselves to the Lord. Like the evil kings of Judah, we forget the grace of the Lord in our lives, reject the call of godly parents, and turn ourselves and those around us to pursue idols with us. You see, it's because each of us are just like these people in this list that we each need the Savior that this list points to. For those of us who have trusted in Christ, this list also gives us hope. Despite his sin, God calls Abraham his friend. Despite murder and sexual sin, David, God still calls David a man after his own heart. Despite all their sin, God uses every one of these individuals to ultimately make his glory known through Christ. Likewise, God can use you. Many times we think God cannot possibly use us because of all the sin in our lives. The beauty is that God has taken care of our ugliness on the cross. And, we, and he can use us despite our sin. This week, God was even able to use me. A wicked, selfish, too often very foolish person to lead someone to Christ right in my office. God was not waiting for me to be a better Christian before he could use me. And God's not waiting for you to be a better Christian before he can use you. What he's waiting for, you, for is for you to obey. The end of the Gospel of Matthew, as Michael point out for us in a couple of weeks here, Jesus gave a final command to go and take the Gospel to the nations. If you will respond to that call in obedience, God can and will use you despite your sinfulness. 
Even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. This list of names is not a mere list of names. This list of names reveals God's perfect plan to send the Son into the world. This list of names points the way to what Christmas is all about. That God would send his Son through broken people like us to bring salvation to broken people like us. Now as we enter into a time of invitation, we have two paths that are are put before us. Two truths that are put before us. One is that Christ has died on a cross. He came to this earth and died on a cross to forgive you of your sin and your brokenness. If you're here today and you do not know Jesus as your Savior, you have not given your life to Christ, do not step out of this building without knowing for sure that you have a relationship with Him, that your brokenness is taken care of and covered by his grace. Secondly, here we have a call to return, a call to restore this relationship with him, a call to be obedient. God can use you even though you're broken. Even though you don't feel like God can use you, he absolutely can. He used these broken people to bring salvation to the world, and he can use you. All we need to do is obey him and submit to him. Let's close in a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for this opportunity to, to Lord, see how even, even, a, even a list of names so gloriously magnifies you. God, these people are not beautiful people. This is not the lifestyle of the rich and famous. This is not the A-list of most godly people would have ever walked the face of the earth. Lord, these are terrible people who have a gracious God. Lord, we, like them, are terrible people who have a gracious God. We thank you for sending your son. We thank you for this opportunity we have to celebrate the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the coming of your son into the world so that we can have salvation. Because, Lord, we are these people in this list of names, and we need a Savior. Lord, I pray that we would not think that we have to have arrived at a certain place before you can use us. I pray that we would, just cho- that we would choose to surrender to your will, choose to surrender to your leadership, no matter where we are, that we would honor you and glorify you and be used by you. We thank you for what you will do in our lives. 